is Chris Young, Professor Chris Young at Rutgers Business School. I am here today with a very good friend and colleague, Dr. Joanne Chula. And uh, I'm going to give you a bio of Dr. Joanne Chula in a second, but we're here to discuss her book or one of her many books on the philosophy of work. So uh, before we jump in, let me just let me just highlight some of Dr. Chula's uh, incredible background. So first and foremost, uh, Dr. Chula is a full professor at Rutgers Business School. She is also the director of the Institute for Ethical Leadership, where I am also a fellow. Uh, professor Chula is a pioneer in the field of leadership ethics. Prior to joining Rutgers Business School, she held the Coaston Family Chair in Leadership and Ethics at the Jepson School of Leadership at the University of Richmond, where she was one of the founding faculty of the school, which is the first degree-granting liberal arts school of leadership studies in the world. Dr. Chula has held academic appointments at Harvard Business School, the Wharton School, LaSalle University, and numerous visiting appointments outside of the United States, including the UNESCO Chair in Leadership Studies at the United Nations International Leadership Academy in Jordan. She's a Fulbright specialist, which allows her to work with institutions outside of the United States on programs and research related to ethics and leadership. She sits on the editorial boards of the Business Ethics Quarterly, the Leadership Quarterly, and Leadership, and she edits the New Horizons in Leadership Studies, which is one of the largest collections of books from the humanities and social sciences on leadership. Dr. Chula has served as former, former president of, of the Society for Business Ethics, International Society for Business, Ethics, and Economics. She has also worked with the Aspen Institute and the Brookings Institute and has given lectures and seminars to business and government organizations all over the world. So welcome, Dr. Chula. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. So we're going to, if it's okay, we'll just jump right into your book. Uh, I'm going to put it up here so everybody can see this book. <laughs> It's called The Working Life, uh, The Promise and Betrayal of Modern Work. Um, I just want to add, start out the conversation a little bit about, about this book. So I've been, I've read this book probably in 2016 or so. Um, I wasn't too familiar with the philosophy of work. And when Dr. Chula joined the business school, like always, I try to understand what many of the faculty are writing. So I read the book. And probably within the first 60 pages of reading your book, uh, Dr. Chula, I decided I was going to make it a portion of my course or a part of my course. And it's been ever since. So for about four years or so, we have been uh, discussing my students, that's about 200 to 250 students a semester have been discussing your book um, and discussing the ideas within the book. Um, what do students find fascinating about this? Uh, probably more fascinating, probably I was, probably for me it was, um, it was shocking when I first heard it because they all said, this is the first time in the business school that we're actually discussing history. Mm. And we're getting into some sociology and maybe some psychology and you know, we're talking political science. So much is in this book. It's such a sweeping history and it's so exciting. So, so that's wonderful, especially in the business school coming from our students. Yeah. So again, thank you for writing this book. Um, for me, it's a has to read. It's not a, you know, maybe you should consider reading it. If you're a business person, uh, if you're an aspiring business student, this is a must read. 
for, for any of them because it, it explains where work fits in our lives. And too many of us don't get the opportunity to ask those questions. And I know personally, uh, it wasn't until I was probably eight or nine years in my career where I started to contemplate, what am I doing with myself? Why am I doing this? So with that, um, if it's okay, I hear you, I hear a call back there. Do you need to? That's okay, I turned it off. Okay. So, <laughs> so if you don't mind jumping in here, tell us what is the, what's the driving force behind this, what I believe is a, a wonderful book? Well, it's, sorry, I'm turning my phone off, so excuse me a minute here. We don't get interrupted. All right. Um, well, it started a really long time ago, and it's it's kind of a silly story, actually. So I started teaching in 1975 while I was starting my PhD, and we needed a new course because nobody wanted to take philosophy courses. So we had this faculty meeting, and we threw around these crazy ideas, and uh, we and philosophers are a funny bunch and um, so we decided we had two courses students like most of our courses were about St. Thomas Aquinas so you can imagine undergrad yeah. not all of them were excited about it so um, we threw around some ideas and we had a course on love and human sexuality and that was always you know oversubscribed <laughs> and we had another one on death and dying and that was oversubscribed and so I just being the youngest person in the department and the only woman in the department and being pretty irreverent, especially when I was young, though I haven't really grown out of it. Uh, I said, well, we've got sex and death. What do you do in between? And the answer was work. <laughs> so, that's excellent. So that's, they said, that that's a great idea. We'll have a, <laughs> I said, we'll have a course on philosophy of work. So they said, that's a great idea. You figure it out. So I figured it out and uh, it grew to be the most popular course in the department. And I hired some of my doctoral student colleagues to come and teach it. And um, then I wrote my dissertation on it. And I guess I was interested in work in part because early on I was back in those days, you know, when I was in graduate school in the seventies, most philosophers were kind of lefty Marx Marxists. So um, that was a, that's where we were. So being thinking about work, there are philosophy of labor courses. And those are in, had been all over Europe, the Tavistock Institute in England and other places. But I wanted one, I was, back then you didn't have interdisciplinary courses. department and we didn't do interdisciplinary work. And so I thought I needed all these different fields to talk about work. So, so I wrote my dissertation on it in, in philosophy, which also was extremely controversial back then. And um, I guess the, one of the other reasons I was always fascinated by work is my grandparents on both sides were immigrants from Sicily. And my grandmother in particular, I mean, they were the stereotypical immigrants who believe that if you worked hard, you get ahead. So they were mm -hmm. huge believers in the American dream. So that sort of fascinated me about work yeah. because I'd heard it all my life. And my grandmother was when the first labor movement for young women, she was a seamstress. And one of the last things before she really had bad dementia, she talked to me about were the days that they demonstrated um, and became, later became part of amalgamated union. And she said it was the Jewish girls and the Italian girls, and there were policemen on horses. And 
<laughs> and so that piece of labor history also I found fascinating. So there was a lot of personal reasons as well yeah. as uh, intellectual reasons for doing it. So was this a driving force too for you? you? You thought you had to work really hard earlier in your career? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just that's you worked hard and got ahead. I mean, that's that's kind of the old. Yeah. And yeah, and you had to work harder than everybody else too. Indeed. That was, that was important if you were going to get ahead. You couldn't just work hard. <laughs> yeah, especially especially as a, especially as a woman in 1975 in a PhD program, right? I oh, would yeah. imagine. I would imagine that's even more so. Yeah, the sexism back then in graduate school, especially in philosophy where there's very few women, was extraordinary. I mean, if people heard it today, they wouldn't even believe it. Uh, yeah, I get it. Probably worse than Wall Street. Yes, yes. Yeah, and people didn't do anything about it too. So so, so this this got you into writing into writing this book. Um, what was the what was the idea? I mean, so What's the what's the end goal of the book? What do you want people to take away from this? Well, you know, it was funny when I was writing it because I started going through the history and history really informs pretty much everything I do. And it has my whole career. But I started writing the history and I realized that I wasn't sure how the book would end. So I just kept writing it and looking at all of these different aspects and then I got to the meaning of life chapter and, and then was surprised at how little literature there was on meaning of life. I mean, serious, like by philosophers, not by popular writers literature, but I did find quite a bit of it. And I didn't want to say, I didn't believe that, you know, the whole idea of a workaholic. I mean, some people, it's okay that they're workaholics. So I didn't want to be one of these, oh, you've got to lead a balanced life and take time to find, I mean, that's all mushy stuff, but people are all different. And I had this dear friend who, who uh, passed away a while ago, um, Bob Solomon or Robert C. Solomon. Of course, of course, legendary. He was one of my best friends and um, he worked incessantly. He published 23 books and he died around, he was about 60, four, maybe 62 when he died. But he wrote, he had 24 books and God only knows how many articles. And he was a maniac, but he enjoyed life as much as anyone else. And he worked all the time. And his, his wife, Kathy, who's also good friends, but she worked all the time. But when he stopped working and there was this, I, I wrote his uh, obituary for this, the Business Ethics Quarterly. He, he had a way, when you sat down to dinner, he dropped everything. He loved, loved to have a good meal and some nice wine. And he, he would work like a maniac constantly. He didn't sleep very much. He worked on, but he would just take these moments. And I've never seen anyone enjoy life so much in those moments. Wow. And so it, it was, that was kind of in the back of my mind because I, I, we were always talking to each other about what we wrote. And that's why I didn't know it was going to end because what was I supposed to say? Well, you shouldn't work too much or you should enjoy your life or whatever. And I came to the conclusion that, and, and he, he, I'll tell you what he said. My conclusion was that your work should, should contribute to lighting up your life. And there's an old song, you light up my life. I forgot who, who said, but that's what he said. It was the, you light up my life. <laughs> but that, that it should, it should in some way lighten up your life and make, make your life good. 
and the condition to it. I said, well, what, what's the condition to it? So you can't just make your life good. We can't make everybody around you miserable. Mm-hmm. So that's the second caveat is you need to find work that makes your life good in terms of producing the kinds of things you need to live, right? But also just in terms of, in, in the Aristotelian sense, eudaimonia, the idea of flourishing. Does it make you flourish as a human being? Um, does it make it so you're nice to your family? If it makes you so you're miserable to your family, well, then there's a moral problem with it. Sure. And so sure. that was the, the, the message was consider all of these variables, think about these variables, and then think, does, 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 work, does your work do that for you? If it doesn't, because not everybody has a fascinating job that, if it doesn't, does it provide you with the things that you need to, to lead a good life? And those things I laid out were very simple. They're ch- chapters in the book. Uh, at work, they're just being at a workplace that is treats you right. I mean, it's, yeah. it's teach, yeah. you, teach you with respect. Dignity, but does yeah. it give you, and, and this I got partly from William Morris, does it give you enough leisure so you can rest up and do other things? Does it give you enough money so you're not hand to mouth and maybe running short on food, which unfortunately is where every, a lot of people are today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and does it give you a reasonable amount of security? And of course, that's always a tricky thing today, especially in a country like yeah. America. Yeah. So, so those were the, the focal values of it or the, the important values of it that you needed to look at. And William, William Morris puts it in a different way. He calls it worthy work. Um, because you know there was a time when people worked so much, so many hours a week that any free time was just used to rest up for work. I mean, if your work makes you too exhausted to do yeah. anything, then you need to think about that. So, but I didn't know I was going to get there until really I got to the conclusion. Okay. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, and, and actually I, I didn't feel bad about it because I also had a lot of uh, friends who were artists and uh-huh. a lot of times painters don't know what the painting's going to look like until the end. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I, I tend to write that way too. And I enjoy that. Yeah, yeah, I, I actually still sort of write that way. <laughs> well, you kind of need all these premises to discover your conclusion, and you have to develop the premises. Yeah, sure, sure. So you see something in the book that, for me, when I first read it, it was a little bit of an eye opener. Um, you, you, to quote you, to quote the book, you write: "We live in a paradoxical culture that celebrates work and tries to eliminate it at the same time." I just want to dig in here and because I, I find that because I, I and I'll, I'll share with you in, in a bit I agree with that totally mm-hmm. uh, from a different from a different perspective but help us understand that that thought process well I mean so here we are and this takes us back to Aristotle too to the opening quote in the book right where mm-hmm. he wistfully says you know if if the shuttle could weave and the plectrum play the lyre without a hand to guide it, then masters would not need slaves, right? Well, you know, we have music that plays, we don't, and, and we have weaving that takes place by machines. Okay. So, but if you look at modernity, it's all about trying to simplify work, mechanize work, and, and of course now with, with digitalization, it's how to take, before it was getting rid of manual work, and now it's getting rid of mental work 
And so on the one hand, we're a work-oriented society. On the other, there used to be something called labor-saving devices. And we don't really make them. We make labor, we make producing devices, basically. So it used to be, and the, and the ones that were really labor-saving were washing machines. Yeah. Washing machines were an unbelievable invention, far more drastic effect on people's lives than a lot of our digital things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, people would spend days just doing the laundry. <laughs> one, of, one of the statements that you say that you write in the book, and I, I'm just vaguely remembering it, you say, we, many of us try our best to save up enough money so we never have to work again. Right, right. And, 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 and you asked, you know, in a, in a previous discussion, you asked me about finance, right? And that's the finance idea, right? Is how can I save up enough money to get myself out of this, this game, get, help myself off the, you know, out of the mousetrap? Mm-hmm. Um, is that, is, that the, is that the general idea that, you know, where that's the paradox? The paradox mm-hmm. is we say we love to work, but then at the same time, we want to try to remove it from our lives as much as possible. Well, and there's, there's even a third leg to the paradox. And the third one is that, you know, lottery winners often don't stop working. <laughs> so they kind of get right. what they want, right? Why yeah. do people play the lottery? They get what they want, and then they discover that they need to work. Mm. So... So yeah, that's the paradox of work is, is on the one hand, you know, if we could imagine a scenario where you had some endless amounts of money and somebody to do every single little chore from cleaning your house to filling your gas tank, I mean, you name yeah. it. Well, so what would you do? I mean, how many people have the capacity for leisure? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a big question now because they're talking about, uh, is there gonna be enough work to go around in the future? Would people know, you know, if they had guaranteed income, which is another big issue on the forefront, would most people know what to do with their time? Or is the idle mind the devil's workshop? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. And and, and is this, so again, you you bring in some really, um, for for me, eye-opening commentary statements. You mentioned liberal arts in the Mm -hmm. book. And you take the the Aristotelian perspective that liberal arts are, uh, was was meant for teaching people, teaching citizenry at the time, what to do with their free time. Right. Whereas right. T- today we come to the university and we have these conversations every day at the university. Uh, how do we how do we further how do we further our abilities to find work? Right. 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 Um, you want to just add, you know, provide some thoughts about that. Well, I mean, so Aristotle says, actually, he uses the term scholae or leisure. And he says it's, to, well, he says it's to help pe- educate people to make good choices in a free society. And then he talks about leisure. And by leisure, that's time unfettered, right? That you can do anything you want. Well, if, if you don't, liberal arts education tells you things you don't know you may want to know. Yeah. It tells you things that if you don't know any history, it's not as much fun going around a city or traveling to Europe or doing any of those things because you don't even know what you want to know about. Yeah. Uh, same for art, the same for literature. Literature. I mean, you may not even know that there are certain fantastic authors out there that you would love to read. So the liberal arts tell you about how to live as a free person, not as someone fettered to a job. 
Now you shouldn't tell that to parents who have to pay all this tuition these days. <laughs> yes. But it, it's worth thinking about. And actually one of the reasons I came back to a business school from a liberal arts school, this is my subversive side, was I wanted to bring the humanities back into business education. And that speaks to you. I was delighted to hear your students like the idea of history. Yeah. Um, but business ethics uh, is, is a way of bringing humanities into business education. And the humanities as a part of the liberal arts is a way of thinking about business in much more broader and human terms. So I'm gonna share a personal story with you sure. because it, it, it does right, dovetails right into what you're saying. And I share this with my students as well. So as you know, I, I did my doctoral work and I did a, most of my doctoral work in philosophy and in economics and in theology. Um, so so I, I, like you, you get a chance to read a bunch of stuff. And mm -hmm. a, a substantial body of literature I had a chance to read in, in theology and then the same in philosophy. And, um, I finished my doctoral work and my visiting lecture uh, position was up at Seton Hall. And I'm at dinner with the senior executive of the Wall Street Journal. And there was, this was not a job interview, but it goes something like this, just, and it's real simple. We got, talk, we got to talking about Martin Luther, who we'll discuss today. We had a chance to talk about Adam Smith, and we had a chance to talk about Marx, and we got on Aristotle, and we discussed Plato. We didn't discuss one business concept that entire evening, the very next day, my students, they love this story. The very next day, I get a call at 10 o'clock in the morning asking me if I want to be head of strategy for the Wall Street Journal on my phone. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know what I love about this is that and when I have students who can discuss literature and art and philosophy and economics and psychology, they become, they're really interesting people. Yes. Those are the ones that I remember. Uh -huh. And uh, anyway, it's not to get off topic, but I, I find what you just said to be, to be very fascinating and, 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 very, and very true. Well, and, and I, I, it's that. a great story because students really don't understand that. Well, first of all, nobody wants to have dinner with you if you can't talk about those things. And unless they're just using you or it's a transaction going on. But the other thing they don't understand is, quite frankly, you don't even have to major in business. I mean, how many employers have you talked to who said, they don't have to have a business degree. They just That's need right. to know how to think critically. They need to know how to be articulate. Yeah. They, they need to have some perspective on the world. And that's what liberal yeah. arts gives. And that's mm -hmm. not to denigrate the business degree. It's just to say that it's good to bring this stuff into business education. Yeah, totally agree. Um, one of the concepts, going back to this paradoxical uh, idea, what do you think about this idea that we, we explore in my business ethics course? that the, uh, we live in a paradoxical culture because most of us who study business argue that we enjoy and we love the competitive markets, but we do everything in our, in our everything possible to eliminate competition at all costs. <laughs> That's a great one, yes. They're very similar, right? It's, yeah, it is, it is. It's a very similar idea. And, you know, we're gonna talk about that this coming week, but it, uh, when I, when I read this paradoxical culture, I, it, it quickly went to that idea. All mm -hmm. right. So, um, you mentioned in the book, I believe it's chapter three, going to chapter four, you, you, you bring in uh, to the conversation 
you know, earlier, con earlier civilizations, um, when I say earlier civilizations, civilizations pre-Renaissance, pre-1500s, and you discuss particularly the Greeks and how they viewed work. And they viewed work as a curse to, to modern society where we, I believe you call it, you say we have a romantic love affair now with work, which I, I take that to mean we're, we're in love with it, right? So help, help us understand, how do we go from a curse to a love affair with work? Well, I mean, it, it, it's so intertwined with the development of modern economies and, and certainly modern societies. So it's, it's very much a cultural thing. But you've got to remember the curse. Uh, so that's biblical, right? So Adam and Eve get, get pushed out of this sure. life of leisure in the Garden of Eden and that for being bad. Um, and so the curse part, continues through our culture. So if you read Dostoevsky, for example, uh, he talks a lot about work as a way of finding your salvation. Mm -hmm. um, prisoners use worked, right? Actually, prisoners still do work, but, but it's part of your punishment, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in the ancient Greek times, people were slaves because, and, and were made to work because they were usually vanquished enemies. I mean, modern slavery is a lot worse than the Greek slavery in that they got what was called a social death, meaning that, you know, you lost the battle. So I can either kill you or you can have a social death and you have to work for me, right? So, so work has always had this sort of oppressive notion. And um, so what happens as we go through it, we get to um, Christianity where in the Benedictine monasteries, this idea of, of work as a way of glorifying God becomes a religious concept. And then good old Martin Luther comes along and then work all of a sudden becomes a way of showing signs of your salvation. And that really sets the stage as Max Weber develops for the, the work at the Protestant work ethic, which comes to America. Now America's work ethic is very distinctive. I mean, and it catches on later on, but it starts off distinctive for the simple reason it was one of, you couldn't in Europe, if you were a poor person, work hard and end up owning land. That just didn't happen. Yeah. So you've got all these people coming over from Europe and all of a sudden, if they, they produce a, uh, develop a piece of land, it's theirs. I mean, that doesn't happen anywhere. It doesn't happen anywhere really in, in much of human history around civilized societies. So that was the amazing thing. So work became, work paid in America and it paid against the backdrop of how people, workers got here, which was through indentured servitude and of course later slavery. Mm -hmm. So so work was a way, work really did get you ahead. And that's why the, when I was talking about my grandmother's work ethic, it's yeah. the same one that made America. And is that exclusively work related or do you think it had something to do with in the US private property laws were you know, a little bit different than they were in, in England and in greater part of Europe? Yeah, I mean, it was pure John Locke. Yeah. You, know, you, you, you fix, you fix it as he said, <laughs> an area of land and it's yours, right? So it's, it's, it's certainly um, part of the laws of, of property. Um, people got cheated all the time. I mean, indentured servants, for example, uh, when they finished their seven year indenture, they were supposed to get you know the old 48 makers and a mule, but a lot of them didn't get it. 
Um, so it didn't always work well, but it was, it was related to the law and the structure of our society is this vast wilderness that needed to be developed. Yeah, yeah. Again, fa fascinating. Um, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned Max Weber, you mentioned uh, one of my favorites in history, Martin Luther. Um, and and it's, it, it's fascinating because most people have no idea of the story, right? Of, of the idea of the calling and yeah, yeah. You know, how we change the, how theology changed, fundamentally changed the way we perceive work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Can, you, can you just give us two minutes on, or more on the- On theology, yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating, <laughs> fascinating to me. Because we can even see it in the Bible. I mean, so it starts out that, you know, the lilies of the field don't, don't do work. Why should people? And that you should just trust in God. So in a way, in theology, it's a, it's a political theology in a sense that um, keeps everybody under control. Um, you just wait and let people tell you what to do instead of you doing it yourself. So it's antithetical to what we see happening in America, mm -hmm. even though you know we had the Puritans and the Calvinists and all those people coming here. So theology does that. And um, so the Benedictines, I think, started it. So here we're talking early Christianity, you know, 300s, 400s, that period of history. So they decide that God smiles on good work and they uh, decide that, you know, that's, that's a way of expressing your glory, which sort of sets the stage for all the wonderful art that comes out of, you know, with the, without religion, we wouldn't have a lot of great art. Yeah. Uh, so all the art, they set the stage. Uh, the Renaissance looks at people in a different way. So we see in that phase of history, the idea of, of man, the maker becomes a, a powerful idea and um, becomes sort of, something to aspire towards. So you see all this flowering of arts. And then of course we get into um, the kind after the reformation, that's when the calling comes into play. And the calling was a bit of a sleight of hands. Again, very political on Luther's priming. I don't know if our students, Luther was a little nuts, but he was, but he makes a very important impact on history. Yes, he does. In his own nutty way. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but, but when Luther comes along, it's a little tricky because in a way he gives a theology that's perfect for the industrial revolution. Because it's kind of shut up and work and show you're worthy. And it doesn't matter if it's good or interesting or engaging work. It doesn't matter if it's creative work. It's all equal whether you're a ditch digger or you're an artist, it's all equal. So it does some good things in terms of everybody being equal, does some bad things because it just means work is work and it doesn't matter to people. And I think that's that changes. And then of course, delayed gratification, which you get through the Calvinists and other people is yeah. the stage for capitalism as well. Yeah, such a, I mean, as a, as a recovering artist, right? I'm always, uh, <laughs> trying to see how this art emulates society. And we see, we see it here, right? Um, this is the, tell me if I'm wrong, but isn't this the first time in history or uh, maybe you know the answer, the first time in history when we connected work to wealth or work to wealth to God, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we did it We did it for the first time with a choice, right? Uh, I, I find that to be, again, something, something new. Mm -hmm. um, it, 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 do you recall if this is about the same, about you know, wealth and work? Is this the first time when wealth and work for the general population became connected, right? Because in order to know if I was saved, that uh, I had to be wealthy, right? It's one of the fruits. 
Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because you, you had to have the social and political conditions that would tie those two. And American culture is distinctive because of the fact that it does, if you work hard, well, you used to be able to get wealthy. So when people yeah. talk about the dying American dream today, it's what you don't want, in, in, certainly in America or any country, is a place where someone comes and works really, really hard and gets nowhere. Yeah. And yet, unfortunately, where we are today, a lot of people work two or three jobs and still can hardly make it, still have to have food stamps yeah. to pay yeah. their rent. And so that was years ago, that was what was really distinctive about America. And obviously you also need some abilities as well. I mean, that's yeah, why course, safety nets, because not everyone, unfortunately, is created equal in terms of their ability uh, to work and do something that gets them ahead. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, you, if I'm correct, the book ends in the modern period, right? Um, do you have any thoughts about post-modernity? And if you, if you believe in that period of time, right? Uh, <laughs> where, where does post, because I have my own views here and I share them with my students, but what do you, where do you see post-modernity in this, in this evolution of work? Well, there's one point in my book where I talk about the white men in suits. And the white men in suits happened around the early 90s. And what was distinctive about that is, is that all of the rules started to change. The whole social contract of the workplace changed and post-modernity is no social contract with work. And um, I just remember being on watching the news, I think it was Peter Jennings was still alive and he was saying, showing all these men at AT&T and other places, you know, wearing suits the ones who you know, belonged to country clubs and got braces for their kids and sent them to college, all of those people which really represented what people aspired for in America is, mm-hmm. is that's what you wanted in those days. And they were losing their jobs. And these are the people that, these were jobs that people worked their entire lives and got a gold watch at the end. And that died. And, that's, and so post-modernity, the post-modern period of work is really a period of work where even if you work as hard as you can at a job and, and do it well, you'll, you can still lose it at the drop of a hat. Yeah. That has to do with globalization. It has to do with labor laws in this country. Uh, labor laws have, have become looser and looser and looser, uh, decline of unionization. But postmodern work is that anything goes. And anything goes. Yeah, pretty much anything no. goes once you're hired you may be able to keep that job, you may not, and no matter how well you do it. <laughs> I got it, I got yeah. it. So, so let me ask you this, in post-modernity, because we, we explore post-modernity a bit, in post-modernity, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the, the reestablishment of ethics, right, in the business school. Mm-hmm. And I, I looked at the history of ethics, 1908, Harvard kind of created one of the first business ethics courses and then it wasn't again until like 1920 if I got my date right Yale brought it in and it wasn't until like 1950s and then maybe after after the failure of the automobile industry we started to see ethics you know in, in maybe 1980s we started to see ethics in a, in a real way come back into business mm-hmm. curriculum and now I have millennials right for all of the unfortunate bad you know, the criticisms of the millennials, what I find about the millennials, and maybe this is a postmodern phenomenon, maybe not, but I find my millennial students to be those that seek justice, those that 
are looking to fundamentally change mm-hmm. the way we look at work. Yeah. Uh, what, do you, what do you think? You think there's something there? Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll edit your timeline a little bit because uh, I actually have written on the history of business ethics and Harvard tried to put it in in 1931. So it was after the stock market crashed. And it was, I even have the first someday if we ever get to see each other in person, I have the first business ethics textbook. I found it by Carl Tusch at Harvard. His course lasted two years. The students hated it. (laughs) (laughs) But when they founded it, Lord Alfred Whitehead, the great British philosopher was at the Kennedy School. And he would have these long discussions with the Dean of Harvard Business School and they thought ethics should be in, but they never put it in. So they got rid of ethics for years and years and years. And then when I was there, I was actually the third business ethics fellow that they had brought in to do something about ethics. And that was in 1984. <laughs> yep. And yeah. <laughs> a, scary, a scary place to be, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, well, Michael Jensen was there. I used to have surrealistic ar- article arguments with him about ethics because he didn't really understand what they were in those days. He's changed his tune. Um, but what was interesting about it was that they just, I would have these conversations with uh, Dean MacArthur, who was Dean at the time. And here I was just this young person and they wanted to know if they should grow their own or if they should hire people who know ethics. And I think they were inclined to grow their own. So they didn't really want ethics people. And then there were all of these empty endowed chairs in business ethics. There's still a lot of them. And some of them got filled by the big names in business ethics today. Others just got by filled by some other person they wanted to hire and they just gave them an ethics chair. They still do that today. Really? So the battle goes on, but it did really take off around 84 because um, I I was writing cases and notes for Harvard as a fellow there in 84. Then I went to Wharton and Wharton had a, uh, I helped introduce the first required business ethics course at the Wharton School. And that was a module, that was a seven week module, uh, which they made me teach tons and tons of sections (laughs) as my punishment. (laughs) So it's been a constant struggle to get it in business schools, but you're right about the millennials. That's what excites me about them. Uh, they do care about these things. And the question is how they're going to be able to translate this into some kind of action. Because the mm-hmm. irony is, if it, well, you're too young to know, but my generation, the, the hippies and the social justice people, we've run ourselves into, they've run our, themselves into the messes that we've seen, right? Mm-hmm. The financial crisis, that's a whole generation of people who, when they were young, were idealistic about justice and, and all of that. And uh, yeah. So I hope the millennials stick to their guns on some of this stuff because yeah. my generation didn't. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I, I do believe, you know, and I know you're around millennials as much as I am. I, I do believe that they have a fundamental difference in the way they approach their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do. They do. And it's, it's fascinating. So I know, uh, not that we're running out of time, but there's a couple of questions that some of my students wanted me to ask you directly. Oh, sure. Um, in a perfect world, where do you see the place of work in a person's life? Well, I think what we'd have to say is we can't just have one person. So I, I'd have to sort of segment the answer to that. So in a perfect world, those who either by choice or by ability 
didn't get a lot of education and couldn't do super sophisticated jobs. I would hope that they went to work every day treated with respect, dignity, paid well, so that they, and by well, I mean, so they can support their families yeah. uh, and, and not have to fear it, have some kind of pension and some kind of health care. And mm -hmm. for them, what might be, they, they could, the other thing I said in the book that, that applied across the board is that work has to, has to contribute to leading a meaningful life. And so those things would contribute to that person having the ability to seek meaning in their lives. So for everybody, work has to do that. Now, some will be able to seek meaning in their work. Some will be able to use work to seek meaning in their private lives. And I think that was the other thing that I came to the conclusion because that covers all sorts of personalities, cases, and abilities. Gotcha, gotcha. You know, um, th this gets to, this gets to a, a similar question, a little bit different. Um, because we explore meaning of life, there's various exercises that uh, we engage in in the course. So uh, I'm, I'm just gonna put that one to the side just for a second, but there was a question that came from a student that I thought was pretty, uh, pretty thoughtful. Uh, she asked the question, she says, does your, does your definition of work, right? And what you should expect from work and your definition of the meaning of life do they change based upon the position you're in, in your life, meaning your age? Yeah, yeah, they absolutely do. I mean, you get older and you start worrying a little more about security. You might worry a little less about, well, also personality plays a huge role. So it's, you gotta be careful with that. But you worry uh, less about getting things, um, getting more money. I mean, if you have enough, then it's fine. But you do worry about security. Um, people who have grandchildren all of a sudden really want to see their grandchildren, maybe more than they saw their own children. <laughs> so, so values are constantly changing. And the good thing about college students, and especially those who are about to graduate, is they've got the blank slate. Now, a lot of them are going to have debt, so they're going to need to make enough money to cover their college debt. But aside from that, they really can try things out. And I would urge them to before they get families and mortgages and all those other kinds of things, because that is the moment when you can decide what it is you want to do. And if you don't like it, you should, you should try lots of things. I mean, one of the things that, that's wrongheaded that a lot of students feel like they need is they feel like they need to plan their whole lives. Yeah, I never indeed. planned my life at all. As a matter of fact, I just, I just took advantage of opportunities that came along. And, and um, I mean, I wasn't totally passive, but I can't say I never would have thought I would be in a business school. Um, I sort of always thought I'd be a philosopher, but I never quite knew how that was going to work out because there's hardly any jobs in philosophy. <laughs> but, but you have to say yes to life and you have to be able to do it when you can do it because you become much more limited as you get to middle age. And then when you get older, you get a little more freedom again, uh, as long as you have a reasonable you know, pension or security. Yeah. You know, a lot of people do their second acts. I mean, uh, I could have retired when I came to Rutgers in, my, in 2016. I could have actually retired. And, um, but I yeah, just- Yeah, but what would you do? 
Oh, I know. Well, I wanted a second. I wanted my second act. And so this yeah. is my second act. And I'm hoping I'll even have a third act. So, yeah. <laughs> so sure I think life has changed a lot since, you know, my grandparents were people retired at 60 or 62 yeah. and didn't do anything. That's just yeah. not the way it works anymore. Got it. So I got last last question for you. This comes from a student. If there was one piece of information that you would share with us coming from the student. Um, one piece of information about work and the future of work, what would it be? One piece of information about work and the future of work. Mm, that's, that's an incredibly hard question. <laughs> uh, I should have given some thought beforehand. I guess one of the things that remains constant, and, and I wrote a little essay on this, that people are so breathless about the future of work and and what it's gonna be uh, all about, the digitalization of things and whatever. And one fundamental fact that you understand when you read history is that human nature hasn't changed, that people are always the same. So technology might change the way we work, social structures might change in our lifetimes, but the way people behave, especially in regard to work doesn't change. There will be people who wanna dominate and take labor from people or exploit labor from people. So that part is something we can always be prepared for. It's just gonna take place as it's always taken place uh, in anything regarding people. They're always gonna be the same. They're just in different settings with different technologies and different social structures. So more of the same. <laughs> This is, this, is, this is fabulous, a conversation. Um, your book is a fabulous uh, add to, to anyone who reads it. Um, my students enjoy it. We don't read the whole thing, unfortunately, because we just don't have enough time. But uh, I do believe, you know, reading four to eight chapters of this book is, is going to change some of these students' lives. And I know that because some of them have told me okay. that this is the first time that they thought about uh, these topics you know, especially many of my students who come from conservative families, they're, they're taught to drive, 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 and drive and never think about uh, what they want to do, uh, mm -hmm. what they really want to do. So, so, so thank you for the book. Okay. Thank you for this time. It was very uh, enlightening for me and I'm sure very helpful for my students. Great. Well, thank you for taking the time and good luck to you and all your students. Have a nice semester. <laughs> we'll see you.